Hello, and welcome to Sonoran Desert Institute's School of Firearms Technology's official podcast, The Gun Rack. School of Firearms Technology's official podcast. I'm Josiah Upper. Folks call me Joey. And today we have part two of the exciting announcement tour I told you guys about late in December. If you weren't there for it, uh, we have had two pretty major events take place in uh, Sonoran, uh, at Sonoran Desert Institute. The first of which uh, was announced last week, and that is the launch of Sonoran Desert Institute School of Unmanned Technology. Uh, the School of Unmanned Technology has so much going on. Uh, it is very much worth your time to check it out. Uh, hop on sdi.edu to learn more. Uh, but that is but part one. Uh, part two is the addition of a new uh, member of the marketing team who's going to be contracting with us for the next few months. And uh, he is also going to be working in the field of content marketing, uh, which is to say the marketing team uh, for the next few months just got a little bit bigger and hopefully a little bit better. So uh, without any further ado, allow me to introduce you to one Drew Poplin. Hello everyone. I'm very excited to be here. Uh, I did not anticipate such a rousing introduction Joey thank you so much yes well I like to keep people in suspense that way when they're put on the spot there's a better chance of something memeable um, when you came on board uh, to, to start this contract is very early in January uh, you are not a stranger uh, to the world of, of marketing especially media stuff um, can you tell folks a little bit about your background uh, with, uh, with the media stuff that you've done? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'd say probably my introduction to the world of just media in general was in college. Um, I graduated with a degree in theater performance, but while I was there, I did a lot of sort of you know, short film projects for some of the film majors. And one of my good friends was also a film major, so that really gave me the opportunity to kind of learn a little bit about the video and audio side of, uh, you know, of the business. But after college, I moved back to North Carolina, and while I was there, I actually got a job working for a local church. Um, I was in charge of doing their videos, you know, some of their audio stuff. But then I also had the opportunity to work with the marketing manager there, and you know, I really sort of. I got my feet wet into the marketing world there. Um, so I'm very excited to bring some of my knowledge and skills to SDI. And um, yeah, I'm excited to see what cool things we can create. Yeah, we're super excited to have him. Uh, I've known uh, Drew for a little while. And uh, as another North Carolina resident, that's always exciting because there's not uh, there's a pretty good amount of uh, Sonoran Desert Institute students and graduates from North Carolina. Um, there are not a lot of staff members here. There are a couple. I was the first. Um, and it's nice to see this area grow. 
uh, in in the the area of the school that I love so much. So Drew is here, and uh, he is going to be working in the world of content marketing, which uh, for those of you who have listened to podcasts many, many moons ago uh, with the full, uh, uh, most of the marketing team there, uh, we've had Chris Ross on a couple times. He's uh, great and awesome. He's the digital marketing specialist here. Um, we have uh, Jennifer McInnes, who is the vice president of growth and marketing. Uh, we have Dave Propri, who is our visual marketing specialist. He is the guy uh, with a graphics plan and the uh, video editing skills. Uh, he makes us all look a little silly with the stuff that we did before he got here. Um, we have Steve, who's actually fairly new. I'm trying to get him on. Uh, as you can imagine, the new director of marketing is a pretty busy guy. Um, but I'm going to try to get him on for an episode uh, soonish so you guys can hear his voice as well. Uh, but that leaves me, it's a small marketing team, uh, kind of running things for content marketing. Drew's going to come in and be helping me with a lot of that. So when you go on our social media channels, uh, which you absolutely should, uh, if you happen to be on certain uh, social media channels, uh, we're on YouTube, uh, Sonoran Desert Institute. You can uh, just type it into the search bar. Uh, we're on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Uh, and if you go on there, you'll see anything from blog posts to memes to uh, short form videos to builds of the week. Uh, we have all sorts of fun stuff we try to put out there to uh, keep you guys uh, happy and engaged with all the cool stuff we have going on at Sonoran Desert Institute and uh, inform you of, you know, SDI adjacent things, things in the world of farm technology, and uh, like just like the podcast, things in military history, things about firearms, things that are specific to SDI, uh, like the launch of the School of Unmanned Technology. We do all that sort of stuff. And uh, for the next few months, Drew's going to be helping me uh, with that stuff. So you'll be hearing him on the podcast a fair amount. Uh, you'll be seeing uh, a lot of the stuff that comes out, even if it's under a different author, he's going to be helping edit. So he is going to be one of the voices that you guys hear a lot around SDI uh, for, for the near future here, which is very uh, exciting. Uh, I'm excited. I hope you guys are too. Uh, for that, I think it's going to be great. And uh, so that's not all we have going on today. We did want to introduce Drew. Uh, talk about his background a bit, um, but we also wanted to do some some content for you guys. So we are going to be doing an inaugural episode, Drew and I, and we're going to be talking about uh, firearms that were, they're not bad, but firearms before their time, or yes, no, before their time. Uh, we're going to be looking at a list of firearms that uh, a group at Outdoor Limited assembled and uh, and published that uh, firearms that they believe came from before their time, and we're going to talk about some of those firearms uh, and uh, kind of discuss whether or not we think they actually were properly before their time. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. Uh, Drew, go ahead, and I don't know if you have that article open. I do. Excellent. So he's got the article open. And uh, what we're going to do is you'll give an intro for each of these. And I'll talk about whether they are uh, too early 
uh, or that came too soon, or whether they're just overly complicated hunks of mess. As we know, lots of firearms that come out are, uh, some of them are underappreciated in their time. A lot of them are overappreciated in their time. And uh, some of them flat out just don't work. Uh, so we are gonna see where these firearms lie. Wonderful. So the first one we're gonna talk about is the Willock Ignition System. Uh, so this was a system developed in the early 1500s. Um, and what was special about this was it was the first of its kind that abandoned the burning ropes. Uh, RIP to all you burning ropes fans. <laughs> Basically to operate it, you load the gun with gunpowder and you put the projectile down the barrel. Once seated, the user lowered a caulking mechanism holding a piece of pyrite. To prepare for fire, the user winded a disc with an external wrench. Once you were ready to fire, you could simply just pull the trigger, releasing a serrated disc to spin, which created the spark, which fired the gun. Um, so, and before we go any further, these descriptions that we're getting, we're getting this, I mentioned it was outdoor limited. That is incorrect. Um, this is actually Outdoor Life, and the author for this is Ashley Hlubinski. I'm hoping I pronounced that correctly. Uh, thank you, Ashley, for this great content for us to look over. So here's the thing about the uh, wheel lock. I remember as a kid reading about black the evolution of black powder firearms, which um, I didn't realize I was training for my job at age eight, but here we are. Um, I remember reading about the wheel lock and being confused why it's, you know, they would talk about, so the match lock, which is the predecessor, right? When we talk about burning ropes, that's the firearm uh, primarily we're referring to in this particular time period. And the match lock uh, literally used a, a, a match, right? Burning material to set the firearm off. Uh, which is, uh, it's about as primitive as it gets, right? You're essentially operating, it's not quite literally operating a cannon in your hands, uh, but the you can see the parallels uh, pretty strongly, uh, certainly uh, closer to something of a hand cannon than, uh, than something we see uh, now, uh, today. But I remember reading about the matchlock, thinking that was patently insane, which is the best they had at the time, right? Um, and then we would see the wheel lock and then that I would read about the wheel lock and I was like, oh, okay, this works. And then the next page, they would talk about how the flint lock replaced the match lock and the wheel lock was just left out of the picture for a lot of these things. I couldn't figure out why. Uh, and of course, eight year old me didn't realize that the system for the wheel lock was so complex. Uh, what I saw simply was the concept of essentially using pyrite, not crazy dissimilarly to how we would use flint later, although the flintlock uh, system is, is much stronger. Um, I couldn't understand why that would not uh, be preferable to holding a match. But again, um, so this is kind of a value proposition, right? On one hand, the wheel lock rifle is objectively the next step of sophisticated up from the match lock. But it's also really, really complicated 
perhaps uh, unnecessarily so. And because of that, it's going to be not necessarily harder for a shooter to use, but it's certainly more difficult to maintain, uh, at least in principle. I certainly have never owned either of these firearms. And I'm not sure that any amount of simplification uh, would have changed that basic aspect. So while I think the wheel lock is really cool, I would say that uh, going from the match lock to the flint lock might have made more sense afterwards. It, it is worth noting that in this outdoor life column uh, that uh, the firearm saw some military use abroad, uh, but the American colonies didn't really see anything prior to the flint lock. So uh, the, the wheel lock did see use. Um, but if we are looking within the context of the American colonies, um, it, it might just have flat out made more sense to, uh, to stick with the matchlock and go to the flintlock. Um, I understand the necessity of a middle stage, but I can also understand not making a middle stage streamlined. Um, so that is gonna be the wheel lock. What do we have for number two? All right, for number two, we have the belt and fusel. Um, and you actually did a pretty good job transitioning into the second one, or should I say rather Ashley did, um, because this gun is a flintlock. Um, surprisingly, it was developed you know, a little bit late. It was in 1758 that it was uh, being developed. Um, basically, what I want you to think of when you think of this gun is a Roman candle. Uh, pressing the trigger once set off a chain of rounds to fire in succession. Um, and this was actually a gun that was looked at uh, by the Continental Congress. Um, Joey, why did they not take that? Uh, they, I would assume it had something to do with uh, logistics and cost. As we know, uh, the Continental Congress, uh, as they are, as this nation, the United States is being born, uh, was broke with a capital B and a capital R-O-K-E. Like we had, we had less than no money. Uh, so something as innovative as a repeater, which is what this is really, uh, even if it's you know limited in scope, um, the I would have to imagine that Congress saw dollar signs and went, I think we're going to stick with what we've got. Thank you very much. The interesting thing here. The, the thing that set this uh, or prevented this from becoming uh, more commonplace, at least according to this particular magazine, I'm certain the firearm is more complicated than what we're getting here in this, you know, cursory research, um, is that the repeater was not accepted simply for financial reasons. Um, if that's the only reason, I'd say that this is properly a firearm that showed up ahead of its time, right? Because if we were in a different place with different uh, spending priorities and different amounts of money to spend, um, maybe this thing is a bigger part of the uh, history of firearms technology, right? It's still certainly notable. Uh, in fact, Outdoor Life, or actually with Outdoor Life, has this thing. Uh, says that Joseph Belton, who designed the thing, claimed it could fire eight rounds in three seconds, which is pretty dang good for the 1750s. Um, it is certainly a fascinating firearm. Actually, when we're done here, I think I'm going to do a little more reading on this and uh, 
see if I can maybe find some uh, some blog post material to come out of it. Um, I think this is a great option uh, for something that is truly ahead of its time. So what do we got down the line? What's next? All right, well, next we're talking about some breach loading technology. We're gonna talk about the Hearst screw plug. Um, so this came around around 1762, John Hearst, uh, that's spelled H-I-R-S-T. Uh, he provided the British Board of Ordnance five breech loaders more than a decade before Patrick Ferguson, which may be a name that you're familiar with if you are familiar with the Ferguson rifle. Now there's you know, a lot of differences between uh, those two firearms. Um, the number one I'd say is probably the loading procedure. So while the Ferguson, you know, you'd have to uh, take off the trigger guard, um, you'd be able to load from the top. However, the Hurst was a little quirky. Uh, I'd say a little quirky <laughs> because you had to take off the trigger guard and then turn it upside down. Uh, which I can't imagine would be very practical in the field of battle, but that's just one man's opinion to another. Joey, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I'm gonna have to agree with you. Um, so uh, to, to add even to what he said, so you have to turn the hearst upside down, so invert it, right? And then you have to remove the trigger guard entirely in order to load beneath the action. Um, the, I mean, it's just, <laughs> it's, it's a very odd, I, I can understand wanting to do just about anything to advance this technology. Uh, Ferguson certainly was able, I mean, he did the, a similar thing where the rifle is, uh, you're able to load it from the top and keep the firearm upright. But once you get to this point, I have to imagine that you're not going all that much faster than um, some of the the more proficient uh, standard uh, muzzle loaders. Um, now, granted, 1762 uh, is that is an impressive uh, time frame for uh, breech loaded firearms, as we know. Breech loading firearms really didn't become commonplace until much, much later. Um, and again, this is one of those transitory pieces that I think helped pave the way, uh, very possibly for other. Uh, per, dare I say better firearms um, but I can't possibly imagine using this firearm on a regular basis it's just a very odd design that doesn't make it a bad design but it is odd and the fact of the matter is it just isn't going to be practical well um, I, I disagree with you there Joey actually really? yes I do and here is why I think one element that you are over overlooking right now is the aesthetic quality <laughs> now some may say that turning a gun upside down on the field of battle is reckless a or, faux pas perhaps yeah, some may say that <laughs> however how often do you get to turn your gun upside down and show it off i think that could be a psychological advantage yeah. over the enemy we are so confident that we will invert our rifles right in front of you I swear I saw someone do that on Call of Duty once. Yeah. I think that was a glitch. <laughs> the, uh, I don't know. It might be. Um, yeah, and technically, I mean, even using the phrase faux pas in the 1700s means that, you know, you're, you're allying with your enemy if you're pretty much anyone but France. So 
it's a very interesting look at a very interesting firearm. That is the Hurst screw plug. What's next? All right, so next up we're talking about another rifle that's pretty complicated. Um, I think it's really cool. Uh, the Hunt Volitional. Um, now, think of this almost as like an ancestor to what you get with your Winchester lever action rifle. Um, so this was another repeater, it was a 12-shot repeater. Um, and the coolest thing about this uh, for its time was the tubular magazine it had. Um, so while he probably, um, so while Walter Hunt, uh, the man who designed this uh, gun, while he was probably the first person uh, to come up with this style of magazine, uh, the patent office issued another similar design six months earlier. So, ooh, I just missed out on just missed that. Um, another cool thing about this gun, it had a uh, rocket ball ammunition, um, which would later go on to see some action with uh, Winchesters. Um, now, why, why did this one not s stick around? Okay, well, a couple things. Well, I mean, one quick note. It would see application with some other ancestors of the Winchester lever action. The Winchester lever action's got its own thing going on. Um, but the there's a couple things. The, the most important one um, is it's preposterously complex. Um, it is a... Uh, complicated uh, firearm, um, not not quite like the uh, the wheel lock uh, <laughs> firearm, but the it would be complicated. But the tubular magazine concept, um, and according to Ashley, this tubular magazine is what would make its way to the Jennings repeating rifle, which would eventually be modified into the Volcanic, which would then be the Henry, and then finally, or then to the Henry, and then finally over to Winchester. So that's what's it. Uh, what's exciting about this firearm. The biggest drawback to this firearm um, that's worth noting um, really is how unbelievably ugly this firearm oh is. Oh my goodness. It looks like the sawtooth shark of rifles. There's, there's just weird parts sticking out of it. Um, I don't even know what's happening. There's... Uh, First of all, there's a, a trigger that's completely unguarded, just 0% guarded, and it is well, well past a time where that is acceptable in a firearm. Um, ET, I mean, I know people are weird about trigger guards. Even today, they make firearms that aren't, in my opinion, properly guarded sometimes. Um, but there's another uh, piece that is tied to what appears to be the tubular magazine. Um, it has another loop in it, but I have no idea how it's supposed to work um that doesn't mean that doesn't mean it doesn't but uh what it does mean is that this gun is ugly as sin and looks like it has two trigger systems going on um it's it just looks like a giant pipe that has like a remora you know when not to use two shark analogies in one single point but you know when you have sharks swimming and you see them in a documentary and you have those little fish under them picking up the little scraps as they go. It, that's what it, it looks like, a giant pipe that has a remora in the shape of a tubular magazine hanging on underneath. If you get a second, uh, hop on your phone or uh, on your computer and look up the Hunt Volitional. You will see what I mean. Uh, definitely not winning any beauty uh, pageants. Not 
uh, not like the the next farm in this list, which is a personal favorite of mine. And we're talking about the Gatling gun. Um, so, you know, really, this is a gun. Y'all know what a Gatling gun is. Um, so why why would it be on this list? I mean, I guess I could you, you could say you know, it was bulky for one. It, it was bulky. It was unwieldy. Um, it does not. It's often called the first machine gun, which just is not correct. Um, it does not make use of automatic fire. It just doesn't. So you have anyone who's played Red Dead Redemption or anyone that's a firearms enthusiast will know uh, that it makes use of a hand crank which rotates the barrels uh, to fire bullets one at a time just in rapid succession. Um, so this is a um, this is a I don't even know if it's technically semi-automatic. It's essentially just a very fast <laughs> very very fast uh, uh, somewhat auto-loading revolver um, but it is, it was large. Um, it was, uh, it didn't actually see a lot of use during the Civil War as much as uh, war movies might show us to the contrary or the hilariously short-lived uh, Civil War video game that the History Channel created in the late 2000s. Um, <laughs> deeply terrible. Uh, featured a lot of the Gatling gun. Um, the uh, Ashley notes that actually the the big exemption for that is the siege of Petersburg, uh, that towards the end of the Civil War, where trench warfare started to really become a thing. Um, but the Gatling gun was used by uh, the U.S. and uh, other nations, and the U.S. used uh, Gatling guns in the Battle of San Juan Hill, which is another uh, pretty famous battle in the American. Uh, or the annals of military history. Um, the the biggest downfall of the Gatling gun, uh, and I think they could have gotten, uh, especially if they streamlined it a little bit, they made the, the size a little more portable, uh, could have gotten bigger, but early machine guns started showing up just a few decades later, uh, two decades according to Ashley, and uh, they had better maneuver maneuverability, and they... Um, yeah, just flat out did the job a little bit better uh, than the Gatling gun did. But the design is so cool and works so well that the um, the minigun, which is what we know today, right? I mean, just goes and uh, if, you, if you ever want to see something that uh, that will blow your mind, uh, go watch someone uh, video someone shooting a minigun. It sounds like a curtain is ripping. Uh, the the rate at which uh, ammunition can go out of that thing uh, now that we're not hand cranking it I mean it's it's amazing they're also uh, reported to be uh, very accurate in the right hands um, so the Gatling gun is not so much a bad design as it is a bulky design um, that got chased down uh, by the next generation so it is simultaneously it, it was simultaneously not advanced enough for its time and ahead of its time in different respects. The core concept is immortal, right? I think we're going to have uh, different variations of the Gatling gun around for the foreseeable future. Um, but the the practice of it was just not, it wasn't quite there. Uh, doesn't make it not a really cool firearm. I mean, I would, 
uh, I'd give my left arm to have one in the collection. I don't anticipate that happening soon. Uh, although there are, they make uh, versions of the Gatling gun, quote unquote, uh, in different chamberings that you, if you've got a cool, you know, five grand, I think you can pick one up in nine millimeter. I think I saw that recently on gun dot deals, but the, uh, yeah, it's awesome. It's something that I will never do because I have a wife who, um, will, you know, if I ever disappear from here, uh, without any notice, you know that I probably bought the Gatling gun and she did not let me live to see the, to see it in use. Um, what a way to go out though. Yeah, I know. That's, it's always be in the back of my mind. Now, I think there was a missed opportunity with the Gatling gun, personally. What's that? Um, I think, uh, when I think about uh, what came after a couple decades, I'm thinking about the invention of flight. And what I want more than anything is, was to see uh, Wilbur and Orville Wright attach a Gatling gun um, onto the front of their little glider. Um, Maybe you could add a you know a mechanism where you use pedals instead yeah. of a hand crank, and so it'd be like you're you're riding a bike while firing um, a heavy piece of machinery on this paper thin glider. Uh, I think I'm no scientist. I think there could have been some issues, but you have to admit that would have been pretty cool. Are you familiar with the A-10 Warthog? I, that's exactly where I was going. Yeah. This. I thought it would be a just, just a hilarious hand crank. <laughs> Not even the glider necessarily. You just stick it on the front mm -hmm. of a biplane. And, uh, I mean, again, it's the biplane. We're, we're sticking it on like a Sopwith Camel in, <laughs> in 1917. And it's, it's going poorly. Um, and what they had is objectively better, but it doesn't matter because how cool would that be? All you do, you don't even have to use it in any sort of violent confrontation. You just stick it up top and you fly over the enemy trenches until they see what's going on and they surrender. Well, I tell you, if Snoopy had that, uh, the Red Baron would The Red not. Baron would be donezo. Yes. Uh, <laughs> that is the truth. <laughs> so, uh, oh, oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, uh, if we want to move on to number six. Yeah, no, go ahead. Um, you know, speaking of World War One, um, Joey, you've ever played Battlefield 1. I, I have. And that's how I know what this firearm was before I saw it. It makes me cringe here as it made me cringe in the game. Uh, and that gun would be the Burton Light Machine Rifle. Um early single soldier portable selective fire rifle with intermediate cartridges now joey i can still see a look of pain in your eyes yes um why don't you like about the burden well let's talk about what's important i want a video game based in world war one that doesn't unnecessarily have assault rifles in it I just want a normal World War One shooter. That is not too much to ask. They didn't have this firearm. Like, no, it did not exist. Um, it's, and that is agonizing. I just want a World War One shooter that features bolt action rifles and maybe a Martini Henry if you're lucky. Um, and that's not too much to ask for. 
and instead what we got was they they wanted to cram i don't know why we're doing a deep dive analysis of the failures of battlefield one but the um they wanted to cram all the aspects of a modern first person shooter into a into a game that literally the conflict it surrounds ended a hundred and four years ago but they crammed uh, some machine guns in there which actually I can forgive a little bit more um, there are shotguns in there which is totally acceptable there's the Martini Henry which at that point is probably bordering upon antiquated but I don't care because it's amazing for them. Um, and the bolt-action rifles are just secondary um, to firearms like this so all of a sudden the battlefield is overrun with uh, light machine rifles and if you don't know what this rifle is this is a um you know before we dig into you know debates about what a assault rifle properly is versus assault weapon yada 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 this is not really the podcast for that i can tell you that the burton light machine rifle was uh not crew served as a single soldier uh selective fire rifle that shot an intermediate cartridge now what does that sound like <laughs> Um, that's a, it's a very modern thing, and it sounds a lot like the um, the Sturmgewehr, right? The STG forty four, um, which is often uh, called the first assault rifle, right? Um, this firearm, though, uh, was first of all had a super weird cartridge, three forty five WSL, which, like, I bet there's like one out there, but I, I can't imagine you being able to track it down for use if you ever picked up one of these things, which you can't do anyways um, because it was just made as a prototype and the war ended before it could become super popular. <laughs> Actually, uh, Ashley in Outdoor Life also mentions uh, Battlefield 1 because I, I hope it annoys her as much as it annoys me. Uh, and uh, as she notes and is worth noting, uh, this gun was not made as an aircraft observer's weapon that fired incendiary rounds to attack balloons for some flipping reason. Like, it's so dumb. Um, but all of that aside, and it is, uh, this one is another one that can make it into the ranks of the wonky-looking firearms. It's a weird-looking gun. Um, as you'd imagine, for one that is properly ahead of its time, which this rifle absolutely was, um, if you can create a somewhat reliable intermediate cartridge shooting select fire firearm, uh, and you do that before World War II, you're pretty ahead of the game, especially if it's single-person uh, shootable. Um, that's, I mean, that's a pretty significant development. Uh, I do not know personally if that's the first one of its kind ever to do so. Um, there's probably something even more obscure I don't know about. But that concept, uh, first of all, proves that that was something we've been thinking about for a mm -hmm. long time, um, which is even more interesting because trench warfare um, we're talking about distances uh, like I would imagine that you would want in a lot of contexts, uh, you know, the distance between the trenches could be different in different places. But I would want something with a little bit of, of reaching out power uh, beyond what an intermediate cartridge could do. Uh, but they were thinking that way already, which is 
which is just darned impressive. Um, so I really do wish that one had been put into service um, or at least made some more for the civilian markets because that would have been absolutely fascinating. Um, let's skip number seven, uh, which is the David Marshall Williams M1 carbine prototype simply because it's I go into it a little bit, but the history is like fairly complex and I'd actually like mm -hmm. to go back and do it justice with a full thing uh, rather than just gloss over it. So so we're going to skip over the uh, David Marshall Williams M1 carbine prototype, uh, not because it's not cool, but because uh, the history of the M1 carbine is fascinating. Mm -hmm. um, it actually involves commuting the sentence for a murder at one point. Um, and I want to give it a full the respect a full episode would be due. So we're going to go right, right to number eight, which is the king of all these ugly, ugly, ugly firearms. It looks like you put three Legos together from different sets and left them outside for weeks. It's like when you're a kid and you go into the woods and you grab a wonky looking stick and you say, this is my gun. This is my gun. That's It's that. That's what... Uh, that's what our final gun on this list is. It's the EM-2 rifle. Uh, so this is a British gun. Um, it's a bullpup. And, um, and I hate it so much. Um, my feelings about the design notwithstanding. Um, this basically came about uh, NATO was... They're trying to standardize uh, weapons, um, you know, both ammunition and firearms, and this was after World War II. Uh, so, you know, a lot of countries, they were uh, putting in a, a lot of military contracts for this. And uh, the EM EM-2, sorry about that, the EM-2, it was one of those. Um, well, as you can guess, it didn't necessarily went out, but it didn't actually do too bad. So why didn't we see more of the EM-2? Okay, so a few things about this rifle. It's a, it is, they call them the British stockless rifles, uh, which Drew was referencing earlier. Uh, we would call it a bullpup, right, in the US. The magazine is located behind the uh, trigger guard or uh, the trigger assembly. And again, this is an aesthetic abomination. That's part one. Um, so this was tested with the F-14 and the FNFAL, the uh, right arm of the free world. And um, it was there was a few things about it that uh, people didn't like. One, it was it was chambered for 280 in the U.S. Um, not a fan. Um, I don't know how much it would properly resemble the 270 hunting cartridge. I would imagine probably not super much, uh, but I could understand if it did. Uh, it certainly doesn't. Um, the 270 and what we ended up rolling with, the uh, the 5.56 NATO, certainly do not even kind of resemble each other, and it also is not going to be the same as the 7.62 by 51 which of course the M14 and the FNFAL are going to be chambered in. Um, if you have not uh, the M14, I would expect most of you to, to know pretty well. If you happen to not know what the FNFAL is, it was an extremely popular firearm, just happened to not be used in the United States. 
uh, very much, if at all, and uh, is very much worth uh, looking into. It is a gorgeous firearm. Uh, I had the I've had the opportunity to shoot uh, at some range days, both a semi-automatic and a fully automatic version. Uh, and the the fully automatic version, I don't know what they were thinking <laughs> when they made this firearm selective fire because you shoot three rounds and you are, uh, I mean, if you shoot three rounds, it rises. You shoot like five or six, you are now shooting anti-aircraft rounds um, rather than uh, <laughs> rather than anything in front of you. It is extremely, uh, extremely kickback, kickbacky. <laughs> There's a lot of recoil to it. Um, so uh, actually, the EM2 was very briefly adopted by the British government, uh, according to Ashley, but... Winston Churchill actually shut it down. Uh, he said it was expensive, uh, but according to Ashley, it was really because he was a huge fan of the FNFAL, which I don't blame him for. Uh, when they, when England did a bullpup, once again, it was the uh, L85A1, which of course is famous for not having gone very well for the British. Um, of course, I believe the British still make use of a bullpup today, and that bullpup is the is a superb firearm and not too dissimilar um, from from the L85A1, just improved in all the ways that that matter. Yes, I believe that the uh, British still use the Enfield L85IW, also known as the SA80, but I might be wrong about that. Uh, feel free to look it up yourself and leave a comment on this podcast um, at podbean.com with your findings. But for now, that's going to be this episode uh, of The Gun Rack. We've gone through some of the firearms that were possibly ahead of their time, some of which were just plain wonky. Uh, and we have welcomed Drew to the podcast scene for the next little bit. Thanks for having me on. And once again, we want to thank Ashley over at Outdoor Life. Uh, for this wonderfully written article. I encourage you guys to go take a look at that article for yourselves for no other reason than you can see some of the pictures of these guns. That and, is uh, absolutely yes. And I will even, I'll give you the title of that article is Eight Military Weapons and Technologies That Were Too Advanced for Their Time. Thank you, Ashley, for writing that. Uh, article. I don't know if you intended for us to use it as source material, but you did a great job, and here we are. So uh, thank you for that. For now, that is the gun rack. Have fun out there, and we'll see you at the ranch. Sonoran Desert Institute is an online school located at 1555 West University Drive in Tempe, Arizona. Accredited by the DEAC. For more information, please call 800-346-8939 or visit sbi.edu.